Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Is it Wednesday? I think it's Wednesday. The 17th, it is Wednesday. It's Wednesday, 17th of November. Good morning. Good morning, Des Moines. I'm going to say it all week. Good morning, Des Moines. Uh, we are live in Des Moines, Iowa. We have a new signal there at 100.7. So um, go ahead and get your friends in Des Moines out of bed and tell them, hey, you can join Mornings with Carmen and we can listen together and then we can chat about what she's saying. There's a wrinkle in it this morning. Yep. Yep. There's a wrinkle in it this morning. Have you heard about Wrinkle the Duck? Really, really, really cute social media uh, phenom. All right. So Wrinkle the Duck. Wrinkle the Duck is an emotional support animal. Don't roll your eyes. I, I, I saw you. You rolled your eyes. Wrinkle the Duck is an emotional uh, support duck who ran the New York City Marathon. I I just want you to think about that for just a second. Custom webbed sneakers uh, on Wrinkle the Duck. If you haven't seen it yet, you're like the only person left who hasn't seen it. So the runners in last weekend's 50th New York City Marathon had some pretty cute competition. That's uh, that's the headline um, on Yahoo where... uh, where I'm reading this particular post about Wrinkle the Duck. Now, the reason that I'm using this one is um, they have some of the social media posts embedded in this article, and I want to highlight a couple of sentences. So I'm going to just read the first two paragraphs of the Yahoo piece. An emotional support duck named Wrinkle has gone viral after her owner shared video of the feathered sprinter running the race in what appeared to be a pair of custom web sneakers. Quote, I ran in the New York Marathon, captioned a TikTok post, which has now surpassed some 2 million likes. Wrinkle the Duck, this is a quote um, from a YouTube video from the owner of the duck. This is the one I want you to pay attention to. Wrinkle the Duck is more than just a beautiful Pekin duck. She is a full-grown adult human child. Okay, now wait, full stop. Because... I recognize that sometimes it's hard to know how to read what someone writes on social media. So, are we to gather from this that the human being with whom Wrinkle the Duck lives is a full-grown adult human who perceives Wrinkle the Duck to be a human child, or because... You see, you could read it. Wrinkle the Duck is more than just a beautiful Pekin duck. She is a full-grown adult human child, which is nonsensical. Or is it? All right. So that's where I want us to hit the pause button because millions of people are liking, commenting on, adoring Wrinkle the Duck. But Wrinkle the Duck is, in fact, just a beautiful Pekin duck. Wrinkle the Duck is a duck. 
Wrinkle the Duck is not human and certainly not a human child. And you and I have to hit the pause button every once in a while, even in an extraordinary moment where Wrinkle the Duck has run the New York City Marathon and has garnered the attention of the Aflac Duck and garnered the attention of millions of admirers as well. There is a relationship between human beings and animals of all varieties. It's set forth in creation at the very beginning. We are stewards. We have dominion. And we are human beings. But like everything else, the God-intended relationship between human beings and animals is corrupted by the fall through the reality of sin. And I get that. I recognize that. Sin has left nothing untainted, including our perception of and our relationship with animals. But I just want to be sure that we all recognize the delusion in imagining that Wrinkle the Duck is a human or a human child. I'll just leave it right there. We're going to have a conversation with Jeff Bilbro from Grove City College. Here's the question up in front of us. And we pulled this from the Des Moines Register. So those of you listening for the first time uh, in Des Moines, yep, we're reading your paper. We take uh, the headline news of the day. We apply the mind of Christ. That's what we do here on this program. So we're going to do so with Jeff Bilbro. And we're going to talk about a new way of talking. It's really an old way of talking, but it's having a revival, at least in Des Moines. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Oh, I know all I owe, I owe, I owe, I owe, I owe, all I owe, and I know why. It's kind of Iowa week on Mornings with Carmen. Jeff Bilbro, uh, welcome. I'm going to let you introduce yourself to our new listeners in Des Moines. <laughs> well, good to be with you, Carmen. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a professor, associate professor of English at Grove City College and, uh, uh, maybe that's all you need to know. I don't know. <laughs> all right. So you can check out one of my favorite uh, resources that Jeff cobbles together c- Together is called The Water Dipper, and you can find it at frontporchrepublic.com. So you want to uh, grab The Water Dipper at frontporchrepublic.com. Uh, it is an aggregated resource by our conversation partner this morning, Jeff Bilbro. And one of the things you will find if you go to uh, this current edition of The Water Dipper, is something uh, about new conversations taking place, new ways of talking with one another in Des Moines. So brief people in, Jeff. Yeah. So my friend Nathan Beacom, he's he's part of this group that has um, try, is, is in the process of trying to revive uh, what's kind of an old social media, the Lyceum. And they had their first Lyceum, I think, last week, a couple weeks ago, and they've got more on the docket, both in Des Moines and elsewhere. All right. For and, people uh, that don't know, what is a yeah. lyceum? And yeah, so and and it's is... not like it's not like I see a lie. It's L Y C E U M lyceum. Yes. Thank you for that. That's good. Uh, yeah, it's an old, actually, it's an American concept that was started in the early 19th century by a guy named Josiah Holbrook, and he thought, you know, this is a, a new nation. It's a democracy, a republic. We need to uh, have kind of broad educated conversations with, with with one another to try to figure out what kind of a country and, and 
you know, region we want to be. And so he went around, they started in, in Connecticut with Connecticut farmers and um, locals, and then they spread out from there, uh, mostly along the New England area, but, but uh, out into the heartland as well. And uh, they were quite popular in the, I don't know, 19, uh, 1820s, 30s, 40s. And, you know, folks like Emerson or Thoreau or um, uh, Lyman Ward Beecher, you know, Harriet, Harriet Beecher Stowe's dad would, would go on these circuits and they would talk about really complicated topics like science topics or philosophy or literature or theology. Uh, and people would sit there, listen for 45 minutes or an hour and then dialogue. And mm. um, it, it was a kind of social media before we had digital social media. Yeah, real conversations. Um, and so why um, is your friend, Nathan Beacom and others, why are they arguing that the Lyceum is due for a revival? Yeah, I think one of the things uh, is that so many of our local conversations now uh, take place in the shadow of national fairly polarized and simplistic debates. And so instead of talking to our neighbors about um, substantive issues that we care about, we just kind of feel each other out for where we stand on one you know, hot button issue of the day or another. And so they're trying to, to revive this mode of conversation to, to you know, try to be more uh, parochial as opposed to provincial. Like, there's this this Irish guy, Patrick Kavanaugh. He makes this distinction between parochial and provincial. And uh, the provincial is a kind of a local mindset, but that's always looking over its shoulder at what's going on in the big city. Um, you know, so we we can't talk about issues in our school. We have to think about whether or not our school is teaching CRT or something. Um, but the parochial mindset. Uh, is unabashedly concerned with what's going on in our neighborhoods and regions and isn't as self-conscious about how these slot into some national, uh, again, more polarized debates. All right. So um, the Iowa version of the Lyceum movement had an event on November the 11th, but you can actually check out what's going on nationwide with this, lyceummovement.org. You can see what's happening maybe in your own community, or maybe you'd like to start or join a Lyceum chapter where you live. Um, we here at Mornings with Carmen, we we have been learning how to talk about topics um, across a wide range of subject matter and to do so from a Christian worldview. Maybe it would be great for us to be taking that to the streets and talking about those things in community with others right where we live. So check out lyceummovement.org. Jeff Bilbro and I will be right back. There's always a reason to always choose joy. There's something deeper that the world can't destroy. Smile when you think you can. Continuing our conversation with Jeff Bilbro. He is a professor at Grove City College, but he's also just an absolute astute student of the days in which we live. And so because he's paying attention to a range of topics and I like to talk with him, he has agreed to join us here and I love it. So Jeff, thank you again. Um, The common good is a phrase we hear a lot. Um, I'm not sure we actually know what it means. I certainly know we don't know how to achieve it. So take us into this conversation about um, the common good and direct folks to um, to the place where they can find more info. Yeah, sure. 
so yeah, this essay is taken from a new Substack, uh, postliberalorder.substack.com, and uh, it's it's a sort of group project from several folks, mostly Catholics, who are thinking about, uh, yeah, what kind of a politics might encourage uh, a common good. And uh, Patrick Deneen is a well-known uh, political theorist at Notre Dame, and he, he leads uh, it off with, I think, a really thoughtful reflection and definition of, you know, what, what do it mean for us to recognize that some of the goods that we enjoy really have to be held in common for us to enjoy them. Uh, we, we think a lot about private property and uh, individual goods, but that's uh, not really an adequate account, I guess, of our social life together. And so trying to think about uh, what kinds of cultural or political structures might foster these um, these goods that we have to hold together. So let me let me just say that when I hear the word social these days, right? My mind goes towards social media or it goes to, towards socialism. Um, uh, yeah. In the same way, when I hear the word common these days, right? My mind goes to, um, you know, expressions like communism or common. Ah. And I know, so I'm just saying that like the, yeah. the leap that's made by the mind. So when we hold all things in common in Acts chapter two, what does that look like? What does that mean? When we take communion, what does it look like for us to enjoy something that is intended to be shared with everyone as a common good, but it is exclusive to the people of Christ? Like, I'm, you see where I'm yeah. wandering around. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. As, I, as I read this, as I explored this, I think when we distill the topic of what is common and what is good, we mean something in this conversation where the word good is combined with the word common, and we really do mean that it is something that is not only available to everyone in a culture, but genuinely of common good to everyone in a culture. Yeah, that's a great distinction. And um, and it is a complicated topic. And, and when you get to the details, it's fraught. You know, how do you realize these things in ways that aren't communism, right, aren't socialism, um, but are nonetheless um, serving the common good? And I think, you know, this is a good place to start because Patrick— focuses on the idea of prayer as a common good. And obviously, we can all pray privately and individually. But in a culture that is built around prayer, and he doesn't mention this example, but I think it's apt, you know, a lot of um, Muslim cultures, right, they have very public times when everybody stops what they're doing and prays together. Uh, and he references sort of iterations of that in various uh, Christian cultures. Um, it makes it more likely, makes it more plausible for all of us to structure our lives around prayer. So I think you made a good distinction earlier. You said, you know, it's not that, that these goods, it's not only that these goods are available to everyone, but that they are more easily practiced by everyone. So we can all, you know, structure our lives around prayer. But if our neighbors or in our communities are oriented in that way together, then we will, um, build one another up and encourage one another to, to love and good works, as, as the Apostle says. Okay, so in this piece, um, there is discussion of, um, of a person who, with whom I am unfamiliar, and so I may mispronounce this individual's name. Um, Danilu? Yeah, good job. Okay, so I love this paragraph. Danilu posited that prayer is a central practice of a flourishing human life one in which we are cognizant of a horizon beyond our time and place, aware of our neediness, humbled by our dependence, and called to think and pray for others. 
He noted that so many aspects of the modern age increasingly make a genuine life of prayer and these attendant virtues exceedingly difficult. Um, I, and I'm assuming that Danilou is not a contemporary of ours. No, he was earlier this. He's a yeah, earlier this century, early 20th century. Okay, and so this this I this idea that it's we have the freedom to pray, and yet we don't really have a praying culture, and we don't really have we don't really live in the midst of a praying people, and that is a horrible loss in terms of the common good. Yeah, exactly. And and what can we do in terms of you know family life, church life, community life, to um, to kind of rebuild those common practices and structures of um, of prayer, right? It's a, it's a it's a sort of shared network of habits, I guess, or or architecture, or you know how we set up our home and our and our workplaces that might nudge us again toward these habits of um, regular prayer together. So, if you're not familiar with him, um, a guy you would really like on this topic is named his name's Justin Early. Um, yes, absolutely. And so, so he wrote um, the common. Yeah. Rule. And then he's recently written a book. We just had him on earlier in the week, which is why it's top of mind for me, but Habits of the Household. And oh. so he's, yeah, it's sort of like, okay, how do we not just translate all of this, um, but transmit all of this yeah. generation to generation? And so it is about this practicing these rhythms in your family. Um, and I just thought uh, you would appreciate knowing about uh, knowing about that as well. Yeah, I really thought Common Rule was a great book, so I'll have to check out his new one. Um, and even the Common Rule, he talks about the need for these to be um, shared practices as much as possible. So I can, I'm glad to see that he's thinking further along those lines. All right, so one of the things you've got at FrontPorchRepublic.com is a conversation or an interview that you had with Paul Kingsnorth. Now, let me just confess, um, Paul Kingsnorth was new to me as well, and so I want you to introduce him to our um, to our listeners today. And then what did you learn from your conversation with him? Yeah, Paul Kingsnorth is such a fascinating guy. Uh, it's impossible to summarize his life briefly, but he uh, he grew up in, in England, uh, fairly secular guy. He got really motivated to be an environmental activist in the early 2000s. Then he got really depressed with, with the prospects of environmental activism and really activism, period. And he spent, uh, you know, the early part of the 2010s uh, as part of this dark mountain project, kind of a kind of a nihilistic view of, you know, the world's going to end and we can't do anything about it. He, he dabbled in Buddhism and in various kinds of like witchcraft stuff. And then earlier this year, uh, I guess last year, uh, yeah, this year, he uh, was confirmed or baptized into the Eastern Orthodox Church. And he has a really remarkable essay in First Things called, I believe, The Cross and the Machine, <clears throat> about his spiritual journey. Um, but he's just a really, you know, he's a really provocative thinker. He's very wide-ranging, thinking about religion and culture and technology and our relationship with creation. Um, he, he, some people call, I think Rod Dreher calls him the Gen X uh, UK version of Wendell Berry. So you can if that's a reference point, you can think of him in those terms. But uh, I really appreciate his ability to kind of cut through some of the partisan talking points and try to discern um, the deeper rhythms uh, of disorder in our culture and also uh, point toward prospects for genuine, authentic Christian hope. 
All right, so uh, frontporchrepublic.com is where you could go to find these connecting points to what's going on in Des Moines and the um, uh, the Lyceum Project, uh, the Lyceum Movement, and also where you can find this connection not only to um, Jeff Bilbro's conversation with Paul Kings North, but actually links to Paul Kings North's Substack and the article in First Things, The Cross and the Machine, which Jeff describes as the most important essay he's read this year, um, which means I have now put it in my reading list um, for later today. So, um, yeah, so here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that I'd love for you to connect us with Nathan um, Beacom so that we can, you know, have a follow on to the Lyceum Absolutely. conversation and movement as it grows. Um yeah, and just really, I, I just appreciate what you're doing and how you're doing it and helping us connect to really good people and thinkers and the way Christians are applying the mind of Christ to just a myriad number of things today. So thank you so much. Thank you, Carmen. appreciate your good work. Oh, that's Jeff Bilbro. You can find him at Grove City College. We'll be right back. Well, what in the world is going on in the world? Uh, we appreciate having the opportunity to talk with Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News to bring us up to date on what our brothers and sisters in Christ are doing globally, particularly in places of, of conflict. And so Ruth will be here next. How are you at asking questions? Have you mastered the art of drawing someone out of his or her shell? Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. There's a skill that every parent needs to learn. It's the simple art form of asking questions. Thoughtful questions have a remarkable way of getting teens to think outside the box. They make a young person evaluate what's really going on inside. And when asked a thoughtful question, a teen feels valued. So mom, dad... Do you want to connect with your son or daughter today? Are you ready to show them you value them? Try asking a good question. Not a yes or no question, but one that really makes them think. Then, wait for the answer and listen. Want to hear Mark in person? For a list of upcoming events, go to ParentingTodaysTeens.org. That's ParentingTodaysTeens.org. Joining us now, Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. Good morning, Ruth. Good morning. So I'm uh, I'm reading um, a, a Chiron on CNN right now that the Islamic State has claimed responsibility for the attacks that killed three people and injured three dozen others yesterday in the Ugandan capital of Kampala. What are you hearing from uh, your partners there? Well, it's actually been kind of a surprise because uh, Uganda has been kind of the the bulwark uh, against militant Islam in that region of Africa. Um, they've been really uh, behind a lot of the war on terror uh, in that area. And um, so to, to be 
dealing with such an obvious, blatant attack, not only on uh, law enforcement, but also on parliament. The, the attack actually forced the evacuation of parliament yesterday, um, was, is, is sort of a, a stunning blow more to morale than in the actual damage that was caused um, because of just everything that's that's been going on with uh, trying to cultivate Western security support. Um, in this situation, uh, the Islamic State did take credit for it. They've kind of connected themselves to the Allied Democratic Forces, uh, which has been responsible for an increasing number of attacks on anything that they deem to be uh, not following the correct ideology. So um, in, in this situation, what we've been seeing over the last two years, actually, is a rise in specific attacks and attacks on churches, attacks on pastors, attacks on law enforcement, schools. Uh, so very similar pattern to what we've been seeing in some of these other areas in Africa where you have uh, an insurgency or a chapter of the Islamic State starting to come to power. Um, so this is something that is... Um, um, I guess uh, a pattern to watch. Uh, this is a country that is predominantly Christian, so there are a lot of ministries that have um, decided to use Uganda as a base from which to send out, you know, partners uh, to to build certain kinds of things, to build schools, to to teach pastors, to teach nurses, to teach teachers and things like that, and then send them out into the mission field. Um, so if you're going to talk about it, a, a rising insurgency of Muslim extremists that are going to be targeting um, the, the soft targets in the country, much like we've seen with the Islamic State of West Africa in Nigeria, this could be a point of concern. Um, obviously, our partners are... Um, speaking into the situation and asking us to be praying for the body of Christ in this area. Um, it's not a new insurgency. We'll say that. It's been kind of going on for uh, at least five years with an obvious ramp up in the last two years. Um, but this is the first time they've really made such a public uh, stand uh, in the Capitol against parliament. So, this is kind of an unnerving situation. Be praying for the, the, the ministries that are uh, located in Kampala. As you might imagine, there's a lot of security now coming down, and uh, there's a lot of um, uncertainty. People are kind of rattled. Um, ask God to be sending his peace into the situation, um, that those who are being the hands and feet of Christ in Kampala will be able to speak truth into the situation. Um, pray that they have clarity as they do so, um, mm -hmm. wisdom, because the, there is a cell, an active cell of the uh, Islamic State ADF uh, mm -hmm. in Kampala, obviously. Um, and so the danger isn't over. There is a, a concern that there could be another attack. Um, mm -hmm. And we just need to be standing with our brothers and sisters in Christ as they deal with this kind of stuff. So we're talking with Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. Um, let's turn our attention or return our attention, Ruth, um, to Haiti. What is the status of the missionaries um, who were taken captive more than a month ago now? I wish we had a status. Um, there's not been a lot of public information. Uh, and the, the reason for that is we don't want to do anything that would endanger the negotiations or the, the hostages that are being held at this point. Um, so very little public information is going out. And 
uh, at this stage, the ministry is asking everyone to join them in praying for the release, uh, praying for the opportunity for Christ's name to be made central despite the circumstances surrounding this. Um, One thing that it has done is highlighted the conditions in Haiti that people, I think, were previously unaware of, uh, especially since the assassination of the president. I think people just got so used to hearing, oh, stuff is bad in Haiti, that they just weren't paying attention to just how bad it was getting. And um, by this, you know, when we had this situation, uh, all of a sudden it's peeling back the layers of, of, um, I guess, secrecy, um, of, of obscurity and thrusting their situation into the forefront so that we recognize that uh, basically Port-au-Prince is being divided up by the warlords. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's being run by gangs. And so it's not safe to go outside. It's not safe to really do anything because anything can happen to you while these gangs are roaming their territories. Um, and it is one of these kinds of situations where uh, they're better armed than police. They are better equipped than the law enforcement and uh, the the law enforcement that's uh, in their efforts to do anything are pretty much outgunned. Um, so it is very difficult to really get control of the chaos at this stage. You're going to need somebody who's even stronger than the gangs and better funded than the gangs to bring some order back into the situation. And what yeah. that would take, nobody knows. So, you know, so ministries me, that are working. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's OK. Let me read. Um, let me read the lead of one of the articles you have posted at Mission Network News related to Haiti, because I think this is going to be a surprise to many people. I have I've not actually seen nor heard this covered um, in in the American media, the U.S. State Department is urging American citizens to leave Haiti. Um, both the United States and the Canadian uh, governments have withdrawn non-essential embassy personnel from the nation of Haiti. Um, and so the people who are there serving in the name of Christ um, are not going to have the kind of governmental support that they um that they have expected to have in the past. And when we say that Port-au-Prince is now run by gangs, um, Ruth is sharing with us information that she is hearing from people in Haiti. This is not, you know, hysterical Americans, um, you know, casting aspersions on our neighbor to the south. This is really what is happening. And we absolutely as Christians need to be praying um, for God's intervention, and we need to be uh, resourcing those who are on the ground there serving Christ um, by serving the people of Haiti. Yeah, and I wanted to add to that, um, a lot of ministries are pulling their people out. So they they're pulling out the Americans, and, uh, you know, in my church, we have a, a, a couple that we've been supporting in Haiti, and they have been forced to return home. They don't want to be here. They want to be on the field with their people, but it's not safe for them. And Mm -hmm. I I think any ministry is looking at this situation and trying to make the right decision on, is it more dangerous to um, pull your people out? What message does that send to the folks that that their field is in? Um, Or is it something that they, they can temporarily go and then come back to? 
Um, you know, there are just a lot of questions that are that are needing to be answered, and they're asking for prayer for wisdom in making the right decision for that, because there are a lot of missionaries that would say, I would rather stay here. Um, and, and if they're going to stay there, they're going to risk a lot of things with security. So then the question becomes, what is most important in their mission? Is it security or is it the gospel? And and so there's there's all of these things that are kind of in that conversation, and it's a very difficult decision to make. Our partner is Fahidi with Love. They're actually in Cap Haitian, which is in the north, and not dealing with the chaos that is in Port-au-Prince. Mm-hmm. Um, however, because of the reputation of Haiti, it has cost them in terms of short-term mission trips, in, in terms of people who are going to come and walk alongside the ministry on the ground in Cap Haitian because it's tough to get there. You'd have to come through the port, possibly, um, and that would be risky. Um, or you'd come through Cap Haitian, but not very many airlines are sending through Cap Haitian anymore. So mm-hmm. it's it's a very difficult situation for any ministry in Haiti right now to be dealing with, because even if they're not in Port-au-Prince, all of the things that are happening there are having a ripple effect in all ministries. All right, we're going to turn our attention after a very brief break. Uh, to the Middle East, and Ruth is going to bring us up to date on some things happening in Yemen and in Lebanon. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. We're talking with Ruth Kramer from Mission Network News. For those of you looking for these articles, if you just type Mission News into your browser, um, Mission Network News is what's going to pop up. You can also go to mnnonline.org. That's Mission Network News Online, mnnonline.org. Talk with us, Ruth, about what's going on in Yemen. You know, Yemen has been one of those most underreported disasters, I think, ever. Um, There are so many people who don't even know where Yemen is or how small it is, but it's what they're dealing with is a protracted conflict. Um, It's been at war for so long that I don't remember when it's been at peace. Um, The destruction of the infrastructure because of the war, basic public services are gone, Um, the economic collapse and uh, kind of pre-existing governmental structural issues, uh, along with widespread poverty, uh, have really exposed large parts of the population um, to what is being called unprecedented levels of food insecurity. So we're talking near famine kind of stuff that has been exacerbated by COVID. Um, And our partners in Yemen are trying to get the word out. However, because of the type of place that Yemen is, there are so many security concerns that are involved with this that it's been very difficult to get good information uh, in a timely fashion from them. Uh, So this update that we have is coming straight from them. Our partner is International Christian Response, and it is a conglomerate of ministries that are working in, uh, in Yemen as the hands and feet of Christ. Uh, It's a, it's an under, I don't want to say not an yeah it's an underground ministry because uh, a number of years back um, Yemen basically shut down all Christian ministries and churches and kicked everybody out so they have to be very careful about what they're doing but they're still able to get some information out to us uh, because of the issue of food insecurity their primary focus right now is basically trying to make sure they get resources to people to keep them alive um, 
it is a difficult situation because the inflation rate changes so rapidly. I mean, we've been talking Lebanon with a wildly changing inflation rate, but in Yemen, it's that times maybe 15. So what might cost you a, what, you know, if you're negotiating for, uh, say, a number, a certain amount of flour in the morning and you agree, I'm going to pay you $6 a pound for flour this morning. Let's, you know, do a spit handshake on it. By the time you get the truck there to load the flour, the price of inflation has changed that that agreement to the point where you can't get it for the $6 anymore and it's now $15. Mm. So it's very hard to budget for anything because it's just changing so wildly in a in a 12-hour period, never mind 24-hour. Um, and again, people have very little access to resources anyway because of the conflict and a lot of the NGOs have pulled out of the area. So what we're looking at is a crisis – but because Yemen is so small and because it just is is it's like 15 dogs worrying at the same bone. There's nothing really left to fight over, but they're still fighting. Um, mm. You have all of these situations that are complex. And so ministry, are, you know, ICR is, has been telling us a little bit about this and just laying out the specifics of how challenging it is to work in this area um, and still saying, hey, we're we're telling you this so that the body of Christ can pray, can respond. There's not a lot left that you can do above ground as, as, a, as an, a Christian. So it has to be underground. It has to be through back channels and, and networks and, and basically a black market kind of a, uh, an arrangement. Um, and they're, what they're saying is, we're going to do what we're, we need to do. Please be praying for us. Pray mm-hmm. wisdom. Pray that the right people cross our paths. Pray for favor so that when we negotiate something, it stays the way we negotiated it in the morning. Um, pray for workable uh, uh, arrangements to be able to distribute what they get uh, and that they have those opportunities to be a blessing to the people that they're trying to help. At this stage, they're just trying to be a blessing and they're asking God for opportunities to share his hope. Uh, they're rare, but they do happen. So let's uh, let's talk uh, for a moment about what's happening in Lebanon. Um, before the break, I told people we were going to talk about Lebanon. That's actually a neighborhood to the east of me. Um, Lebanon is a country to the east of us. Um, what's going on in Lebanon? You know, we have a lot of really difficult stories that come out of Lebanon, and, and the challenges are still there. Um, you have... <laughs> the, in fact, the tourism agency put out a slogan called Crazy Love, because they were trying to just say, hey, you know, welcome to our chaos. Our house is messy, but you're come on in, take off your shoes, you know, sit on the couch. And and they're trying to make the best of a bad situation uh, in Lebanon. And when you talk to the ministries that are have been working there since before the Syrian uh, refugee crisis and then through the re- refugee crisis, then through COVID and then through the port explosion, <clears throat> it has been pretty insane, and they're all tired. <laughs> so they do say, "Yeah, welcome in. You know, we'll give you the best we have, and um, please join us in praying for this situation." Um, the Lebanon, I just want to say, is is sort of like the Haiti of the Middle East. It, every time you talk about what's going on there, it just gets worse, and and at some point, you you wonder, is it going to hit bottom? Um, and I, when I asked that question, what's considered bottom for Lebanon, you know, with, with everything that's been happening and a government that is so corrupt that they're stealing 
um, subsidized fuel and then reselling it to Syria. You know? mm. And, and their, their own people are going without and they're going without power because the fuel that runs the generators is being sold to Syria. Um, that with the corruption light at that level, you know, who's going to advocate on behalf of the Lebanese? And, and they come back and say, uh, we need God's people to advocate on our behalf because we can't fix the situation. The government is so broken that we are right on the teetering on the edge of becoming a failed state. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about this, you, you wonder what needs to change. And then we talked to another partner who's saying, well, there's sort of a light at the end of the tunnel and we think it might be a train, but at least the train isn't moving right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, this is kind of one of those situations where um, slowly but surely we're hearing that uh, there's um, kind of a, a slowing of the hyperinflation rate so that the exchange rate on on money is actually getting to be a little bit better so that some of the resources that people weren't able to afford before, now they can start buying a little bit. Um, so there's a little bit of ease of the, the financial pressure that has existed and there's hope that this will continue. Um, like I said, you know, the partner was describing it like, so we're in this tunnel and there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's probably a train, but at least the train isn't moving right now. So mm-hmm. that's where they are. And they're asking us to join us in prayer because there is a lot of ministry that takes place in Lebanon because up till now, Lebanon was considered a largely Christian country. So it was sort of like um, a base from which to send out ministries and missionaries and 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 you know, really be the the place where you are free to have expression of faith. And that has been even more true with these crises now that have been facing Lebanon because um, people who are in crisis really are desperate for hope and nothing that they put their faith in up to this point has been worthy of their faith. So uh, they are asking questions now and they're coming to the churches and they're coming to the ministries with these really heavy questions and asking, help me. Will you help me? Will you tell me what motivates you to do what you do? Who is this God that you serve and why are you different? So there are gospel opportunities that are coming in places that never would have happened before. And that's especially true among the Syrian refugees. Um, and, And so many Syrian refugees are now coming to Christ. When they go home, they'll take the gospel with them. And you're going to see that explosion of the gospel at some point like an investment, you know, like exponential investment there where that wasn't something that could have happened before. Amen. Um, Ruth, as always, thank you so much. It's um, it's 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 such rich uh, conversation with you every single time. You guys can find more stories at missionnews.org. Be sure you read the one about the Taliban fighters having a road to Damascus experience. God is on the move in the most extraordinary of ways, um, still performing absolute miracles and transforming people's lives and doing so because Christians are deployed around the world. You get those stories as well at Mission Network News. Um, All right. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. That is it for hour one. When we come back, uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, the economy of Thanksgiving. What, What are the economics that are a part of Thanksgiving? Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.